0: volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, Please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders.
1: Hello and welcome to season four of Sal Sylvester on the future of leadership. My name is Sal Sylvester. I'm your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based here in Boulder, Colorado helping organizations create healthy, aligned, and more human workplaces. I'm also the founder and CEO of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool we developed to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the future of leadership. And as you may know, season four is all about the future of work. And today we have a very special episode to talk about the situation in Afghanistan this summer and how it relates to leadership. I've never conducted an interview like this before. I was deeply troubled and shocked by the desperate situation in Afghanistan back in August of 2021, and frankly, with what's continuing today, the stories of people and families trapped on the wrong side of the gates at the airport in Kabul. Well, today we have two former military officers with us who decided to do something about it. Joe Sabo is a veteran of Iraq, a former captain in the United States Army who served in Mosul as an infantry officer and platoon leader of a rifle company. Joe's a tech executive here in Denver. He's the founder and CEO of Workable. He's a Stanford and Georgetown University grad. And when interpreters in Afghanistan needed help, Joe created an organization called Team America, which has ramped up within a matter of weeks to over 250 volunteers to help people get out of Afghanistan. My second guest today is Worth Parker. He has 27 years of infantry, force reconnaissance, and special operations experience in the United States Marine Corps. He just retired this past summer. He's served at the tactical level of combat to the highest levels within the Department of Defense. He's had the privilege to observe young Americans at their best in the worst circumstances. He's participated in complex and sensitive operations, and negotiations between the United States and multiple nations, and he's directly advised and supported the most senior leaders of the United States Special Operations Command. Today, Russell Worth Parker is a writer and regularly publishes and speaks on a wide range of topics to include national security, outdoor adventure, and leadership. You won't want to miss the leadership lessons embedded in this episode. It is incredibly moving and incredibly inspirational. Let's go to our interview now with these two amazing human beings. Joe Worth, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm just super excited about this conversation today. As am I. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah. Thanks. So, we've all been shocked and frankly, deeply troubled by the desperate situation that we've seen. In Afghanistan, the stories, the images of kids and family and just thinking about what is happening to all of those people. And Joe, you have decided to do something about it with Team America. Can you just give us a couple of headlines on what Team America is about and, and what you all are doing?
0: Yeah, thanks. Well, like most people, I started trying to get one family out. I actually served in Iraq. I've never even served in Afghanistan. My brother asked me to help get his friend out, and uh, I was bumbling along and didn't know what to do. And eventually, we formed an ad hoc group of volunteers around the country, called Team America. I'm happy to tell you more about the composition and nature of that group, but we essentially guided people to safety. A lot of it was conducting covert link-ups in the vicinity of Kabul during the month of August in 2021, and helping get people that we had vetted out of the country. And along the way, we had a lot of help from really senior and seasoned special operators like Worth Parker.
1: Thanks, Joe. Just unbelievable to even think about how you do this. Worth, maybe you can just give us a sense of your background as well. You've been a special operator for a long time, recently retired, but maybe you can give us a sense of what you've done in your career and and then how you've linked up with Joe and team America.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, and I, I, what I would say about my career is I'm a classic oddball. I did four years of active service and then I left active service for the reserves. And while I was out, I, I worked swinging a hammer on a construction crew. And then my, my wife asked if I, or then girlfriend, you know, was like wondering if I was ever going to be a little more career minded because I was a really bad carpenter. And I ended up working in pharmaceutical sales for Eli Lilly and then went to law school and ended up back in the Marine Corps when the Marine Corps decided to establish a special operations component. I just found that more interesting than filing briefs. So I spent 15 years as a Marine Raider. And then this whole Afghan thing came to pass. I retired at the very end of June, June 30th, and left and drove around the country in an RV with my family and was very determinedly avoiding Afghanistan and news from the country. I mm. um, really felt like I needed to cut from a, a place that had held my attention for 20 years. And when I got back, was kind of shocked to wake up one day and and recognize that the Taliban was in the suburbs of Kabul. I didn't see that coming. And so I started calling friends of mine, both, you know, within the Marine Corps and within Special Ops Command and a buddy from the CIA, all of us, you know, ranging in middle management to kind of senior management roles in our careers and saying, what can we do? What are we going to do? About 48 hours later, through another military connection, I'd become aware of Joe and Team America and what they were doing, and I just cold called Joe. Frankly, I was going to absorb him into us and, and sure. you know, put these guys to work. Quickly recognized in talking to Joe that they were vastly more effective than we were in the actual movement of data and people and having effect on the ground. And that what we really offered was a a Rolodex, one big collective Rolodex. Mm -hmm. And so I said, by the end of the phone call, I said to Joe, I I think we need to be in direct support to you. You tell me what you need. And that was the way it rolled for about two and a half more weeks is that we put ourselves at Joe's behest and things worked out better that way.
1: Wow. Unbelievable. Joe, you mentioned guiding covert linkups like what is the actual work to the extent that you can tell us confidentially just at a high level how do you get people out of afghanistan
0: a really good question i think each day we had to learn a a new way to do it this might be a little bit longer of an answer if that's that's okay but of course um i thought all i had to do was get a notarized letter from an attorney saying this particular family my brother wanted out would come live with us and we just give it to the embassy in Kabul and they get these people on a plane. And I actually spoke with the embassy staff in Kabul as the city was falling. And they assured me that my brother friend would get a phone call within an hour. And that phone call never came. And so that's when we realized like our government is not going to get these people out alive. Mm -hmm. And we established some contacts with the talk, the headquarters on the airport and we're communicating with them initially about, what gates we're going to be opening, when, and where we could send people. And that presented a huge chaotic mess for tens of thousands of people, 30, 40, 50,000 people at a gate at a time. And I remember sitting just in frustration about that all we knew how to do was crowd control and not crowd filtration. And I was sitting in my loft of my home, I think staring up at a coat rack, look at my back against the wall, just looking at some coat hangers. I said, that's it we'll give them coat hangers. We will send them to the gates with coat hangers. And then any Afghan with a coat hanger is going to get in because they're with us. And we didn't end up doing it with coat hangers, but you know, the whole idea was an everyday object or some sort of everyday thing that we could give you that nobody else would have at a particular location at a particular time was going to get you in. So if you showed up at a grid location at two o'clock in the morning with pomegranates in your hand, everybody with a pomegranate was getting in, right? And that allowed us to filter the crowd in a clever way to get them past the Taliban and through these vast sea of people into the airport. And there was no way that that would have worked without the connections that our group of graybeard advisors of which Worth was one of five, really, that enabled that. There's, there's no way it would have happened. We did not have those connections. We did not have any experience doing this. What we knew how to do was basically run a startup really fast mm-hmm. and grow it but we needed guidance from really seasoned people to do it. And so, like Gorth said, it was identifying, you know, what we were each good at, trusting one another, just the fact that he was a senior Marine leader. I was going to do anything he asked me, right? And I think we all just kind of approached it with zero ego. And I think that's a big part of how this got done.
1: Wow. That's unbelievable. I don't even know how to respond in terms of just that ingenuity. And Joe, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about your entrepreneurial background, but your ability to bring that innovative thinking, that startup mentality about hustling into this crisis situation. Worth, tell us more about how you and your contacts across any number of agencies, like you saw yourselves as in service of Joe and his team. Talk more about that leadership aspect.
2: Yeah, well, I think it took a certain kind of leadership and a certain kind of attitude. and I think it certainly helped that we were all retired. I was certainly the most recent retiree, but, you know, we had Pete Petronzio, who retired from commanding a Marine Expeditionary Unit, who had been my commander in, in Iraq, so I had a long-standing relationship with him, both in the recon world and, the, and MARSOC. Mick Mulroy, who was a senior leader within the CIA and the Department of Defense, he was a deputy assistant SecDef. but he's also the most laid-back deputy assistant secretary of defense you'll ever meet. So it was very much a hey bro, what do you need? kind of scenario. You know, Fred Dumar, who when he left Afghanistan as a special forces colonel, was the senior special ops advisor to the Afghan National Special Operations Command, and then went back as a civilian, effectively doing the same role. And so he knew everybody in the Afghan formation, and then Anil, he was a Marine, so there was that unifying factor, but Anil brought what Joe brings as well, is kind of a businessman's mindset. Anil is a senior executive. You said entrepreneurial spirit, I think were the words you used, I'm not sure I said exactly, but that to me was the value in all this. I would say that neither entity that came together could have done what it did without the other, but I will say that in a lot of ways, we on the what was Task Force Dunkirk and is now the Board of Advisors to Team of America or the old guys or the gray beards or whatever we're called (laughs) that day, we were limited by our experience. And by that, I mean we knew certain ways to do things. We've been trained to do things. We've got a lot of experience to do certain things. But you know who was actually doing it was the young Team America folks Mm -hmm. who would tell you, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were doing it. Well, guess what? We theoretically knew what we were doing, but we weren't doing it. And so, you know, what's better, a decent plan, well executed, or a perfect plan that doesn't get executed. And we may have been hamstrung by knowing all the pitfalls inherent to a meetup on the streets of Kabul and going, this is just too hard to control virtually, especially for a bunch of guys who are not comfortable in the virtual space. So these young entrepreneurial aggressive folks are comfortable in the digital space in a way that. (laughs) <laughs> we just weren't much more so now, yeah. Having fallen in line behind them, but you know, we all had a lot to learn. So our real value became: Joe and his crew identify a problem; we identify who the touch point is in the U.S. government or across the five hundred one field, or you know, the retiree diaspora. Who can we call to affect the action that needs to be taken?
1: It's awesome. Just such a great model of how those differences can work in life. We often see on the business front as maybe a startup scales beyond their teenage years and into a young adult, their identity has to change. But we often see like professional leaders coming into the business and you've got these entrepreneurs and founders who started the business and there can often be a clash, right? Of those two mindsets, typically there's an age difference and there's just so many gaps that show up but it sounds like this team figured out how to leverage that to the best of its abilities.
2: I think that's absolutely true. And a lot yeah. of that is putting ego in a box.
1: Ego in a box. So well said, Joe, what's your point of view there?
2: Yeah, I think same thing. Uh, our group is
0: probably about 10 to 20 years younger than most of the people in the group of graybeards and other advisors that came in that think we range in age on average from early thirties to late thirties. I'm 36 in devising this pomegranate plan, for example, or the coat hanger plan initially. And you just got to check ego at the door and say, well, it sounds mm-hmm. great, but, you know, we're just a bunch of yahoos sitting in Denver and Minneapolis and El Paso and all these. I mean, we're cowboys. We're not really professionals here. Most of us, only 40% of our 250 volunteers were veterans. And of those, most of the veterans is about two thirds got out at the rank of captain, 03, from the army, usually, or the Marine Corps. And so I, I had to call Worth and Mick Mulroy, who, Mick is an extremely, you know, distinguished CIA officer, I mean, uh, nationally. And I said, here's our plan. How crazy is it? And we would use them for their, their wisdom to just kind of mm. plumb the depths of our plan and say, like, how good or bad is this? What would you change? And we needed that. Absolutely
1: again, it's the best of both worlds. Like sometimes with those younger leaders, we often see a deeper sense of curiosity. Sometimes when you don't have as much experience, it actually frees you up to take more chance or to try new things in a way that people who've been there done that maybe won't do and maybe a little more risk averse, but you're taking that spirit coupled with the wisdom of someone who has even a deeper level of experience in coming up with an unbelievable solution. Joe, you mentioned on our call, and I may not get this exactly right, when we were talking beforehand, you mentioned something, lightning in a bottle. And there's been an element of that in how quickly Team America formed and what it's done in such a short period of time. Say more about what you meant by that phrase.
0: Yeah, I think for most people, it was the most significant thing they've ever done in their lives, the best and the worst all together and for a lot of people it was the best most effective team they've ever been on it was really interesting because I had no intention of continuing any of this beyond August 31st or whenever the last day was we could get people out I I made that very clear to the group early on I said when this is done we need to put it down and it's going to be horrible but we're going to have to return to our lives we because we expected everyone to be killed after The U S went wheels up the last plane. And so we were just going to do as much good as we can before that. And then return to our lives. And the team basically said, look, this was lightning in a bottle. This was extraordinary. What happened with this group? We started with, you know, me and my brother and then me and my friend, Mike and my brother, and it went from three people to nine people to in five days, we grew from nine people to 200 people. And every day we were running multiple onboardings and training for people. Every day we were reinventing our systems to adapt. The Taliban to adapt to the changing conditions on the ground, to adapt to advice we are getting from various military sources, as well as the Greybeards. And I think one of the people in the group, I'd say about 40% of the 250 were my friends and family, but there was a ton of people I'd never met before, right? So one of the group was a former roommate, former special forces officer, had the foresight in September to run a survey of Team America and just try to figure out what was different, like what made it work. You know, one of the most interesting things to me was twenty percent of Team America didn't know who the leader was. I was labeled the unofficial commander by the New York Times, but twenty percent of Team America didn't know who the leader was. We had a very distributive leadership structure, and I think that for me is, is was a really important feature in this. We went just with good ideas and tried to get behind them. Most people felt that the leadership provided purpose and vision, led by example defined strategy, but then got out of the way and let the various sub teams, because we had about six or seven sub teams that primarily did the work, let them just get it done. So I think um, mm. you know, decentralized operation was a real feature here. And then a ton of the work was very tech enhanced, not only in our internal communications channels, but our, our external lines of communication with the Afghans, you know, had to be increasingly clever to be yeah. safe. And there were a number of other features, I think, that made it work and kept Ego out of the way. But you're talking about a group of, I think, 60% of the team had graduate or professional degrees, you know, just a highly educated group that many of them had military background and said, we're going to come together to solve a really complex problem in two weeks. Wow.
1: So this whole idea of distributed leadership, and and maybe I'll turn it over to you, Worth, like, what makes that work? A lot of times we rely heavily on hierarchy or organizational structure. But in this case, from your standpoint, Worth, what made that decentralized structure effective?
2: Honestly, you know, I hate to, to paraphrase a, a well known book or steal a title, but, you know, Speed of Trust is mm. such a useful phrase. It, it may be <laughs> trite, but I'm going down to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center next week to talk specifically about this to a bunch of law enforcement officers and I I think it was choosing to trust, and we Mm. really went out on a limb trust-wise here, but we had to. I said to people along the way, like, we're throwing out a lot of long-held precepts that are, you know, the fundamentals of how we do business in the military, right? We have SOPs, we have standards, we have decision briefs, we have confirmation briefs. The Marine Expeditionary Unit has a six-hour standard from receipt of mission to execution of mission for some specific, you know, high-risk type things. But within that six hour window are very prescribed measures you have to take to confirm that this is the best way to do business. Well, we were making this up in a lot of ways as we went along. And because it was a flat organization and there wasn't like, you know, if Joe was the titular commander, which I was very comfortable with, the only real value in that to me was he was my single plug-in, right? So that also meant he could be a single point of failure if he'd been the wrong guy. Clearly, he was the right guy, but I didn't have a lot of other folks to plug into so I could possibly overload Joe or, you know, if he's tied down with something else, you know, that's a risk. But we had to just trust that this guy that I've never met, who's 12 years younger than me and lives in Denver, and I cold called because a guy I know had written a story about him, is the right guy. And then I had to go further with randoms, you know, calling us, Hey, I want to help. Okay. Now, fortunately, Joe developed a good vetting process, but my history as a Marine and as a special operator is cold calls or bad calls. People I don't know are probably untrustworthy. And instead we were doing the exact opposite and taking a lot of risk in who we trusted. And so that meant that the vetting standards and the, I don't want to use a term of art, but I will, the counterintelligence standards had to be pretty good, but they also couldn't be nearly as stringent as I would have been comfortable with before. I went to an 11-day program at Dartmouth for transitioning military folks. And there's a, a guy there, Vijay Govindarajan, Professor Govindarajan, who wrote a book about the three-box solution. And one of the the boxes mm. in the three-box solution is constantly throwing out the old rule sets. Yeah, um, right. Yeah we did a lot of throwing out some old rule sets. Mm.
0: I think that was a common thing that we were proud of, but also was a point of frustration on team America was every day the conditions changed and we had to come up with basically a new plan over and literally overnight we were sleeping two and three hours a night for most of August. And, you know, I'll pick on my dad for a sec. My dad was, you know, for a few days, was part of team America. And, He's 67 years old. He doesn't have a lot of familiarity with technology. We're mostly operating in Slack. And he said, I cannot keep up. I want to help, but this is changing far faster than I can adapt to. And so I think we had to have, and I love my dad. He did a lot of other things to help, but to have a team that could really quickly absorb new tech, new procedures, everything. And so I think think that was a key part of it. I also want to say like part of the agility, you know, we've talked about ego not getting in the way, but. I just literally putting aside everything else that doesn't matter. And mm. I think part of the lightning in the bottle for us was you look at America today and we're just so divided about everything. And I'd say for August politics never came up the team America. Mm. And there's, yeah. I have friends in the team that we never agree on anything politically. I'm, you know, more liberal center left and a lot of these guys are center right or even further right. And the five to 10% of things we agreed on included saving lives in Afghanistan of our allies. And so, setting politics aside, um, and just the incredible diversity of the team everyone, when you picture veterans, like as our battle captains, like leading people out of the country, guiding their freedom, you picture, you know, white dudes with beards and you know, but we had three black women among our battle captains. We, I mean, it was a really diverse group. And, you know, I think the story of women in leadership, people of color in leadership, just a a diverse leadership team, I think was a huge part of of what was going on here. And we even ended up bringing in Afghans to our team whose families had been saved over there because we know we needed additional linguistic diversity to help us do what we were doing.
2: I think something that Joe brought up, whether he meant to or not here, going back to your initial question, is mission focus. We were all deeply Mm -hmm. invested in this mission. I will tell you, you know, I retired from the Marine Corps and I said, I'm not taking a job in a business again unless it's small, aggressive, and agile. And Team America, honestly, at, at 200 people is larger than in my mind is small, aggressive, and agile. But because of the way it was organized and the way it was allowed to run, it remained that way on a kind of cellular basis. Our ability to make a decision, run with it, and execute was critical it was more so because it was unified by a specific mission, which was we kept saying just one more, right? We're going to get one more person out and then we're going to get just one more person after that. And everybody knew what the mission was. The best military units I've ever been in, and I've been in some that I thought were truly special. We all knew what our job was that day. We knew why we were coming to work and we knew why we were going to go home and come back again tomorrow. And and we were thinking about our work in the interim because We knew the mission and we cared deeply about it.
1: Incredible. And when you were talking earlier, Worth, about this idea of choosing to trust, part of what came up for me as I heard you say that is that people were deeply connected to the purpose of the organization. And and maybe it connects to that last piece that you just said around the mission focus. We often work with executive teams where it takes ages to build trust. You're actually flipping that whole model upside down and saying, we chose to trust. And you, it was a decision that you made because you had a higher level
2: purpose and mission as a leadership team. And I'm not sure we had a choice. And you didn't um, have a choice. You yeah, know, events right. were transpired. There was no time to discuss marketing strategies or, you know, pull a customer base and evaluate what the desires of someone in you know, Pawtucket are. It was right now, this minute, there are people potentially being killed. We want to save at least one more of those people. So I don't have a choice but to extend myself. I was never in any physical danger. I mean, the background you're looking at is the same background that Joe looked (laughs) at for two weeks. Because I lived in this room for two weeks while we were doing this thing. And as Joe has said, I had no intention of, of seeing this past August 31st. And and frankly, this all started for me because an um, an Afghan interpreter turned U.S. Marine called me, extended the trust on a Sunday night to say, hey, sir, my family's still in Kabul. Here's who they are. Here's why they are in danger. Can you help? And my immediate response in my head was, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. I'm a retired guy. And then I realized that I knew the commander of the Marine Expeditionary Unit. Who was headed into country to do this evacuation? Hmm. I knew another guy there. And then, you know, continuing with the trust theme, and I'm gonna run off the mouth for just a second. We had a night that Joe called me and said, Hey, we got 62 Afghans outside a gate right now. We need to get them through. We're running into trouble. We can't get them where that you know, through the gate, but we're talking to a Marine there. I said, Cool, give me the guy's cell phone number. And I called a Marine in Kabul, Afghanistan in the middle of certainly the most chaotic situation I expect that young captain had ever experienced. And I said, hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel worth Parker. I'm recently retired. You don't know who I am and you don't have to believe me, but ask your mute commander. Cause he knows me well. And here's what I need from you. And his answer as Marine to Marine was, okay, you got it. And I'm just a random voice that just called it. So he's extending trust to me. Mm-hmm. Then I extended the trust. I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to bed. I got this situation under control. I let Joe know everything was good. I'm going to get five hours of sleep. I woke up the next morning, five hours later. I had a text back from that Marine saying he needed some more information. He had sent me some imagery. We're trying to figure out who these people are and where they are. Can you help? Well, I felt like the worst human being in the world because I'd gone to bed, turned out before the mission was complete. And now I'd blown the whole thing because I didn't stay up long enough to realize he needed more information. I texted that man, that marine, and I said, "I'm sorry. This is my fault. Thank you for trying." And then I got ready to call Joe and tell him, you know, the same thing. I'm sorry that I blew this for everyone. And the text I got back from that marine was, "Hey, no worries, sir. We went out and got him." <laughs> and they had injected themselves into that chaos and that danger And, you know, in proximity to Taliban folks that frankly I'd have been shooting at three years ago to say, we're going to get this done because a Marine called us and asked us to do it. Uh That's a kind of trust, like, I don't know how you build that in a company other than understanding your mission.
1: Yeah, that's where it starts. Thanks, Worth. Joe, in the last minute or so here, what's next for Team America and what can people do to help?
0: You know, I think, Right now, we're we're engaging in some national coalitions. We are going to continue to get people out of Afghanistan, and we are going to continue to support the resettlement in the United States and and preserve their data securely. If people want to help, they can go to teamamericarelief.org, and they can donate to what we're doing. We are housed under a 501c3 nonprofit, and people can support that there. And and I want to assure people going forward, we are brokering the necessary and appropriate relationships with the United States government. Another other vetted coalition members nationally. And, and everything now with the space of time, we pilot. We pilot just like any, any startup would and say, let's test this a little bit mm. before we try to scale that solution. Because we, now we have the luxury to be able to do that. And so we're just trying to be very careful that anything we do is doing more good than harm. And I expect that Team America will be around for a lot of years to come.
1: Oh, fantastic. Joe and, and Worth, thank you so much. We'll put that website up on our episode page. I'm also going to attempt to capture some of these leadership lessons from the agility to leveraging each other's strengths to the entrepreneurial spirit to the, to the no ego zone to choosing to trust so many great leadership principles that absolutely apply to the future of work as there in many cases is no playbook on how to move forward. Thank you gentlemen so much. Thank you for your service. Thanks for what you're doing for so many people in the world today, making this world a better place. And I'm so grateful to have connected with you both today. Thanks for letting us be here. Thanks, Sal. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.